You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Terry Brooks is a world award-winning author of The Sword of Shannara in 1977, and he has written more than, since then, 25 best-selling books and a lot more. Besides, his most recent book, The Gypsy Moth, completes a three-book series, Genesis of Shannara. <laughs> Gypsy Morph, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm, I, I was saw just you about to jump in and say, <laughs> The Gypsy Moth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That'll be I'm my so scientific s- research book coming out next year. <laughs> the Gypsy Morph. No, my wool sweater, my wool sweater. <laughs> no, no, no. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Terry, thank you for joining us today on Geekspeak. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, and I'm very happy to start out on a humorous note. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, uh, it's Rick Cleffel. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, the writing and uh, literary climate. When you started writing back in 1977, we're, we live in a world currently where we're just inundated with fantasy. And, and I'm wondering what made you, back in the, the 70s, decide to start out the sort of Shannara, which was really, I think, the first big modern fantasy well, probably if I'd known better, I wouldn't have started out there <laughs> because uh, <laughs> fantasy was not a particularly uh, w- best-selling uh, form of fiction then. Now, there was not a lot of it being written. Science fiction was much more popular at that stage of things. Um, and I didn't start out writing fantasy with the idea, first of all, that I was writing fantasy, which may sound a little strange. But um, I was writing something that was a, the, the accumulation of my involvement with a number of different writers. Obviously, Tolkien was a big influence, but the bigger influence for me uh, came from the European adventure story writers, uh, Dumas, Stevenson, um, uh, Walter Scott, and also William Faulkner, who I had studied uh, in my senior English, uh, written about in my senior English thesis in college, and was very enamored of. And, and I liked that whole concept of of this generational saga with families intermixed all the way through the different generations and secrets known by certain people and dysfunctionality within the families. And I was very much influenced by that in putting it together. So when I, you know, when I was writing Sword, yeah, I was writing in a Tolkien mode. Yeah, I was, I was doing all these other things, but I didn't think of it in those terms. And um, I was just looking for something that worked the way I think writers do when they start out and are experimenting with, with different forms. Because everything else I tried just didn't seem right for me, didn't seem to fit. In, in, a, um, in a New York Times interview, you said, if you want to have readers like a fresh look at hot-button topic, you need to dress it up in different clothes. And that's a great synopsis of being able, and I see this, you see this in science fiction and fantasy all the time, where yes, there is the genre that we're talking about, but in reality, there's a story being told here, and you can present stuff that um, is outside someone's worldview and let them see it because it's safe to imagine that. And then later, potentially, there is an ability for them to map that to their world. That's I'm assuming what you're saying in that in that idea. In part, and you know, uh, this this is the other part of this, the other flip side of this coin, uh, um, just talking with my editor not long ago uh, about what they were getting in the way of submissions uh, by new writers in an era where fantasy is being submitted in huge quantities because of the success of of so many, particularly young adult uh, fantasies that uh, have come uh, surfaced since uh, Harry Potter. 
And uh, what she told me was, uh, you know, if it doesn't stand out in some noticeable way, uh, we're not going to publish it. Noticeable way in, a, in the idea of the world concept or in the story? In, in Probably in both, but in some way that makes sets it apart from everybody else's fantasy that's being submitted. Well, what happened with Shannara, um, when the Sword of Shannara? That was in a slush pile, right? It wasn't even like you were extremely well-known or anything. Someone just picked it up. How'd that happen? Well, it's, it's, I'll, I'll try to get this down to 25 words or less, as they say. <laughs> but basically, uh, I sent it in to... Uh, a company on a recommend uh, on the Del Rey, wh- who at that time wasn't Del Rey, it was Ballantine, on the recommendation of uh, Don Wolheim over at Daw Press. After I'd submitted it there, and he said, "This is too big, and I, I don't think we're up to this." So, but there's been a change in regime over at Ballantine, and the Del Rays have come in. Why don't you send it to Judy Lynn Del Rey? So I sent it to Judy Lynn Del Rey, and she is a, was a science fiction person basically, and her whole background and history was there. Uh, she'd just come in as editor-in-chief of, of, of what was going to be a new imprint called Delray Books. So she got this 800-page manuscript and thought, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't read fantasy anyway. So she gave it to her husband, Lester, who was a longtime writer, science fiction writer, critic, uh, editor, and so forth. And nerves. said, you look at this. <laughs> yes, nerves, one of yeah. my favorites. Um, so Lester gets it. He doesn't even work for the company at this point. He's sitting at home while she's working at over at Ballantine, but they want him to come to work there. And Lester is uh, a curmudgeon of the first order. Huh. Uh, he believes the world has it wrong, basically, but he intends to set the world right. And one of the things he is intended to do is to prove to them that they're all wrong about fantasy that fantasy has a huge population in waiting, all the Tolkien readers and, and, and many more who are not getting what they deserve. They're simply being told, well, fantasy doesn't sell, we're not gonna do that, you know, right. 5,000 copies is it. Sure. So he gets this manuscript and he says, aha, a Tolkien-esque type manuscript, my opportunity. And at that point he went to the president of the company and said, I'll take the job you're offering if you allow me to publish this book is our first original work of fiction. Not bad. I know. Now, I found all this out years later. Sure, I didn't know sure. any of it at the time because I was living in the cornfields of Illinois and didn't know anything. So, um, so your career um, started off with an axe to grind. It started off Somebody with else's. somebody's <laughs> axe to grind and a huge stroke of good luck yeah. of being in the right place at the right time. And, and most writers have a story similar to this, I think, about, about their success in yeah. the field. But, of course, there you are. it's not just the luck. It's also good writing. That's well, you know, uh, it, yeah, I, that, thank you. Uh, it's nice to, nice to say that, but uh, when you, I have a writer friend who does a whole show on uh, t- talking to young writers about uh, what it is it takes to get published. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she'll ask for suggestions, the top 100 things, and someone will always say, of course, talent. And she'll say, that's correct. That's number 52. <laughs> says, and somebody will say, perseverance, that's number two. But number yeah. one is luck. Uh-huh. Luck, luck, luck. A lot of, lot of luck goes into being picked up by somebody who thinks and believes in you. A lot of luck goes into the idea that the house is going to get behind the book. And then there's the whole thing about somebody actually going to buy this thing once it's out on the market because there's so many choices and so much competition. It's amazing that somebody of Lester Del Rey's caliber picked up. Well, I did. And it was funny, too, because he, when he wrote me back, I always get a kick out of this. I still have the letter he wrote back. He's, and, and in it, he said, he started out by saying, I think your book is potentially the best thing since Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which for a, a, a young writer like myself was mind-boggling, to say the least. But then in the next paragraph, he went on to explain who he was, which I thought was very <laughs> funny, 
You know, and of course, I knew who Lester Del Rey was, and I'd been reading him for years, along with all the other science fiction writers, because that was my background. And, and so I wrote him back and said, I know who you are. <laughs> oh, we're, we're talking with author Terry Brooks um, about his uh, series of Shannara, the whole world, I should say. And the most recent um, three, the Genesis, yeah has a very different tact. It ties together your work of um, the Word and Void series, which is post-apocalyptic. Yes. So how does post-apocalyptic tie in with fantasy? Why did you do it? Well, I did it because uh, after writing umpteen Shannara books and five books in Magic Kingdom, I, I needed to do something else. And I'd been talking for a long time about finding a new series, something that would be different. And I really wanted to do something that was closer to our world, uh, if not in our world, uh, and I want to do something dark, uh, modern kind of fantasy. I wanted a format that allowed me to suggest that magic is real, that we just don't recognize it for what it is, that there's a, a kind of an underground war going on, we just don't recognize it as, as being such, that sort of thing, and then to, to develop a story around that. And I, I got an opportunity finally to do that and uh, coupled it with... Uh, a desire to write about growing up in the Midwest in, yeah. uh, in when I was a boy. And what happens when you, you believe, as you do, at, at, in magic and magical things and, and, and creatures that other people don't see and the possibility of all things. Everything's possible at one point in your life when you're growing up. And then little by little that erodes, of course, as you get older and older people set you straight. And so I thought, well, this would be kind of an interesting thing to base one of my characters around. Only, of course, the the fourteen-year-old girl in this case, Ness Freemark, uh, has a better look, insight on the world than the adults who keep trying to tell her she doesn't know what's going on. Because reality, there yeah, is exactly. Magic. Yeah, sure. And um, then it sort of segued off into the uh, destruction of of the world that we know and the decline of civilization and uh, the whole idea that uh, it's a, an incremental process that that civilizations that major civilizations don't just drop dead overnight you know they don't just go to pieces all at once it's a small ongoing process that chips and and uh, away at the foundations until finally something just gives way and the whole thing goes down and how does that happen you know and what if it were happening here and what if there was somebody pushing it and most importantly what if you were somebody who knew this and could do something about it maybe how much would you give up mm -hmm. in order to make a difference well, you know, this series kind of spins off of your Word and Void series, and I thought it was really interesting when you, you yeah. took that detour into, into Running with the Demon, kind of a, a contemporary horror story. And, and could you talk about uh, segueing from fantasy into contemporary horror? Can I ask you to wait on that? I'm so oh. sorry to do that. You get, you get time to think about it, Terry. Oh, thank you. Geekspeak <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> is on KSP supported by, uh, comes from... Uh, Borelgo Solar, offering photovoltaic solutions to enable homes and businesses to be green and resource savvy with sharp solar panels. Borelgo has 28 years of experience and a local team ready to help. Information at B-O-R-R-E-G-O Solar. That's B-O-R-R-E-G-O-Solar.com. Imagine the Marx Brothers answering questions about cars. Picture Mighty Python trying to imitate engine sounds. Mix that up with a little Dr. Ruth and some Smothers Brothers, and you've got car talk. You can hear Click and Clack give their advice on cars every Saturday at 11 a.m. right after us. That's right. And Sunday as well here at 9 a.m. 
on Central Coast Public Radio. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KOSP. My name's Lyle Troxel. In the air room with me, I have geeks Rick Kleffel, Sean Cleveland, Miles Elam. We're going to be taking calls about Terry Brooks' works of uh, fantasy. And Terry Brooks is in the air room with us as well, and you're welcome to call and ask us anything you'd like. The phone numbers are 476-2800. Again, that's 476-2800. Or toll-free at 1-800-655-5877. Again, that's one 800 655 KUSP. We should also mention again that Terry will be at Bookshop Santa Cruz this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Geek Speak on KUSP is supported by Henry J. Ramirez, DDS in Santa Cruz, specializing in cosmetic and family dentistry using digital technology for less radiation and offering one appointment crowns and veneers. For appointments and more information, 423-2447. So, Terry, did you get time to think about it? I think, Rick, you're, you want to... Well, uh, go ahead, Terry, go for it. Tell us a little bit about running with the demon. I've, I've, re- I've recomposed myself here okay. in, the, in the face of the question. I, I want to go back, though, to your comment about horror, uh, because I don't think of that series as being a horror series. I don't think... Everything I do is pretty much the same with certain elements fused into the mix. Um, and for me, uh, it's, it's fantasy adventure. Everything I write is basically some format of fantasy adventure with a little bit of mystery, a little bit of thriller, a little bit of horror, a little bit of romance. And that's why I work in the field I work in, because you can do anything you want with it, really. And you can tell any kind of story you want. Um, and the only question is, how big is the story? You know, what's the size of the canvas you're painting on? Um, and when I started with, uh, with Word and Void, uh, I, I, I knew there were going to be elements of horror involved, but I still saw it as, as, a, uh, as a fantasy uh, adventure story of, of a different form, mm-hmm. just modern. What do, what do you think about our world and where it's going? Do you think we're headed for apocalypse? How much more time have we got here? We've got a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to be enough time. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll avoid the question. <laughs> what do no. I think about that? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I uh, became uh, somewhat disenchanted uh, a few years back about the direction things were going. I, and it played into what I was doing when I began working on Word and Void in the late 90s uh, when I was... Uh, writing essentially about this erosion thing I talked about a minute ago and the fact that it's little things that be, that irritate everybody and that, that show a decline in, in, in civility and in, in behavioral uh, uh, attitudes and manners, this kind of thing, and that that's the sort of thing that signals a deeper problem underneath. You know, we're, I think we're uh, very impatient with each other. Uh, we take, uh, we're polarized in a way that we haven't been polarized in a long time. Uh, we take stands and we say, you're with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. Um, the efforts to try to work through problems has become more of let's bury the other guy and then we won't have this problem. Uh, and I, I don't, you know, I find it uh, very disconcerting to, to see so much of that going on. I mean, obviously okay. we see it in politics, but yeah. we see well, it everywhere. I get that. We definitely have a society which is very polarized. And there's this idea of almost a my side's good and your side's evil. And doesn't that come, doesn't that idea of good and evil manifest a lot in fiction? I mean, your work definitely has this idea. It's certainly written about a lot in fiction. It's, it's easier for people to just say it's either black or it's white, you know, and not talk about the gray areas, but really almost everything is a gray area, uh, has some form of gray area to, uh, for a discussion of, of which way it should go. So, you know, that's a common theme that's been written about since the dawn of time, uh, and uh, I'm just feeding into something that's been there all yeah. along, I think. Well, one, of the, one of the themes you have in the series of, the, in this world of post-apocalyptic you know, United States is that the, there are, are forces of good and evil, magic forces of e- good and evil that are there, and the, what humans do and how they interact can lead themselves into those spaces without even being conscious of it. Right. So is it, 
should we be more aware of what our actions do, or is it inevitable that if we act, we become more of good or evil? Well, I don't think anything's inevitable. I think it, it's definitely a, a choice, but you can certainly slide one way or the other pretty easy by not paying close enough attention to, to how you're approaching your, your problems and other people's problems. Okay. I just think it's interesting that one of, the concern, one of the things you see in our world that's problematic is this binary aspect that your side's bad, my side's good, and in, and in your book, you have good and evil very clearly demarked. Well, the, the problem is, is that there's extremes as well as middle ground. Uh, and the extremes are the, are, are the areas that you focus on when you're talking about good and evil. Good and evil are, you know, they're terms that have, de- uh, for each of us, have a definite connotation. But they're not, they're not objective terms in, in the sense that everybody agrees on what's one or what's the other. Uh, and as a result, you know, you can play around with what that means uh, to the larger demographic uh, in a story and and make it make people look at it I think in a different way that's one thing fantasy does you know that that other forms of fiction don't necessarily do as well as they give people uh, they give readers a chance to look at an issue set in a different context you know it's like taking a step back from what you already think or what you already know and here's a new new look a whole new look and and maybe you're looking at it because all uh, in a different way because the people are uh, that you're writing about are elves you know, right away you've got, oh, elves, gee, that's something different. And you can write about something, and people don't always pick up on it right away, but sometimes it, they, catch it, they catch on to it as you go along. Well, the elves in your world are ignoring what's going on. Yeah, well, that's right. That's their approaches. They've disconnected a long time ago because they were once the dominant species, and they're not anymore. They've, they've been reduced to a small minority, and so they have chosen to go into hiding as a way to protect themselves and to isolate themselves from what they consider the influence of a populace that is detrimental not only to them but to the earth. They're very environmentally conscious and so on and so forth. So uh, this is what their approach has been uh, in the current Shannara series and we see uh, b- was also true back in... The and and they're the not willing to, uh, to take the measures, um, you know, the change it would require to get involved. No, they're and, not. And, and that's really interesting. Is, so where's the parallel? Well, I think well yeah, what do you think, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like this idea of, you know, the, the elves as a representing a kind of, you know, isolationist thinking. It's, a, it's an interesting way of taking something that, that is often seen as purely political and, and sliding it into a different perspective so that we can get a different grip on it and, and a better perspective. I think that... Uh, all the good fantasy that I've read, uh, as not to even to talk about all of the good fiction I've read, works on more than one level. And I learned a long time ago from Lester uh, Del Rey again um, that your first obligation as a writer of fiction is to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. Uh, before you do anything else, you have to do that. So that's your primary marching order. Okay. But after you've done that, in order for it to work, uh, on another level, you have to have some depth to it, uh, and you need to talk thematically about other things and give readers a chance to look at the story more than once because all the good fiction is talking about more than just what's on sure. the surface. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk a little bit about your, your ability to create a good story. You use a lot, I mean, every story, author does this to some degree, but you have a lot of elements of the um, young child growing up and, and the coming of age idea the adventure idea that small group that can change the world idea and what do those even those have um parallels in some sense of what you might want to act like in your world like how can you better yourself and all that but what about when you do this do you do you really map things out deciding what your story is how does how does a a book come about how does a, a series come about in your mind 
Well, at least for me, uh, I write book to book, uh, and although I may be working in a set at any given point, I don't have it all mapped out ahead of time. I only have it mapped out to the extent that I know what the thematic structure of the book is, I know what the beginning is, I know where I'm going, I know what the end is going to be, and I have, my strong, I have a strong sense of who the characters are before I go through it. But uh, the, other, the flip side, again, to this is that you never know what it's going to be until you write it. I mean, you can do all the planning you want in the world, and you can spend all the time thinking about it you want, but it's the writing of the book that determines how the book is going to feel and what it's going to really be. And at some point, I always say, you know, it, there are two things that happen during the writing of the book. One is that at some point during the writing of the book, I'm convinced I've written the biggest piece of crap in the world, and I have to back away from it for a while and then come back and take a second look because it's just I think it's just part of that process. But the other thing that happens is at some point I realize what's important about this book that matters, that's embedded in the story that I didn't see before. Mm. So almost as a reader, you yeah. come back to it and you start do. liking it. Well, yeah. you know, uh, writing is therapy, um, and there's some truth in that to the extent that you discover how you feel about things by writing about them. Even though you may think you know, uh, you, you don't until you consider it deeply, and writing is a way of doing that. It's a structure for allowing you to t do take a closer look. You're listening to Geek Speak. We are geeking out about, about fantasy, about the idea of storytelling in a fantasy world and how we can relate that to our own world. We have author Terry Brooks on. His most recent book is Genesis of Shannara, The Gypsy Morph. <laughs> and we are taking calls with questions and comments uh, about storytelling and fiction and geeking out about those things. So please feel free to call us up right now. The phone numbers are 476-2800. Again, that's 476-2800 and toll free at 1-800-655-5877. And one more time, that is 1-800-655-KUSP. Miles. Or send an email. Oh, yeah. Geekspeak.org. It's funny. Um, when you were talking about the, the duality, the dichotomy of good versus evil and and it being so clearly laid out, it also very much reminded me of the idea that people have brought forward about politics today of being more like a sports team. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. It's about this is my team. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to be fighting for. This is my team, and that's the other team. And they're bad because they're the other team. Mm -hmm. And it was brought more to mind when he was talking, uh, when we're talking about the elves, talking about the humans. It has nothing to do about a common goal, about what the, the end result is supposed to be. It's that's not my team. Right, those people are not doing what I do, and those th therefore they're not part of me. They're the other. Mm. If you carry that analogy on far enough, you start thinking about the fact that these teams have been at war for years, and so in some cases before we were born, in some cases, many cases, they'll be going on after we're gone. Mm. And every game is a new struggle, and in the larger scheme of things, you know, what difference does it make? Right. I mean, so what? Well, especially if you think of the world's going to fall apart to the level that you write about. Right. So do you think it is going to fall apart in the level you Oh no 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 no! I'm not that kind of uh, not that kind of writer, uh, not that kind of person. I'm an optimistic person. Oh, okay. I always see uh, things as as finding a way to go uh, to get better. Um, I believe that uh, uh, you know I, I'm a person of hope, uh, but perhaps uh, not always uh, with a sound reason for being so. But nevertheless, that's pretty much my approach. And when I write a book, I do it with the idea that yeah, there's going to be some loss and some sacrifice and some bad things are going to happen to some good people and so on and so forth, but nevertheless, there's always something at the end to suggest uh, that things are going to get better. If not, you know, then I would be writing horror. Yeah. Uh, you, you, since you have... Since, okay, so the world of um, Shannara, the, the first series, is magical and, I would say, in, enchanting, you know? There's this mm -hmm. aspect of, I could be there, I could get into that. Mm -hmm. And the world that you 
the genesis of it, it comes from our world falling apart into horribleness. So do you th- do you think that <laughs> do you think that that there has to be some horribleness f- for good things to happen? <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking of that concept. I'm, I feel like I'm getting uh, cast in a way that is not entirely true because uh, even though there's a lot of that uh, involved, there's yeah. a lot of other things going on too yeah, in the story uh, besides just the idea of the world falling apart. Um, you know, you set up a scenario like that because if you're writing epic fiction, as the, which the Shannon world is about, the issues need to be large. Yeah, you know, yeah, we can't have something for the characters to overcome. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, can't yeah. just have you know, can we save the farm before the bank forecloses or something of that sort because you know that's not uh, that's not gripping enough yeah, so yeah. you know we need world uh, world uh, threatening issues in order for readers to feel like something is really at stake that matters and then you reduce it down to a personal level in order to make the sure. readers engaged with the characters that's well, a time honored thing and you make the the personal uh, make that person be someone who is in seemingly the least able to actually affect change. Correct. And you know what the best reason for that is, in my estimation, and the reason that somebody like Frodo Baggins and all, all the rest work so well, is because everybody feels like they're in that situation at some point in their lives. You know, they're saddled with some kind of problem, not of their own making, something that threatens to cause them grave distress of one form or another. They didn't ask for this. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They just want to go back to bed, but they got to deal with it. Uh-huh. And so when you put somebody in a situation where you, you enhance that to the point where they're actually perhaps responsible for a whole race or a whole nation or something of that sort, on a, on a purely personal level, readers connect with that feeling right. if you draft it up in the right way. Yeah, definitely. And you really have to put work into fleshing the characters out, or it's just never going to work. Well, like, yeah. With, they, Tol- with Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, you've got a character like Gandalf, who could have solved the ring issue a long time ago. He knew where it was. He's powerful enough to do anything, you know, something about it. But Tolkien spent the time to really flesh Gandalf out, and you really you realize why he never did. And yeah. um, that that's really important. And you're what I've right. noticed about your books is you're doing the same thing. You're putting a lot of, of information behind the characters. So you're really fleshing them out. And uh, that's, that's really made me, uh, I feel, I wanted to know what happened to the characters. I think I, to it, some extent it's more important in fantasy and science fiction, for example, than any other form because they're otherworldly. Uh, and w- you're putting everything in a context that is not immediately familiar. You know, if I'm writing about Santa Cruz, uh, if I'm writing about California, there's an immediate connect. People immediately have images pop right. to mind, you know, beach and surf and, da, 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 and so on and so forth. But if I'm writing about some imaginary world with elves and dwarves and so on, you've got to give them a stronger context to connect with the characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do I have in common with elves, for example? Uh, I think, know, I think your thing. biggest hurdle was uh, giving your characters a reason to go on because you've painted such a dark picture, yes. a dark world. Right. Yeah. Could well, you talk about, you know, one thing I wanted to, to talk about is this, uh, this, we're all kind of talking around this, this uh, idea of world building. Um, you started this out like uh, 30 years ago with the Shannara series and creating this fantasy world. Could you talk about how your skills as a guy who creates and designs worlds for characters to move around in have changed? It? And just how, because more fantasy has been written, more things have come in. You've got more tools and options over these years. I think you get asked a lot about, you know, how far ahead do you look uh, when you're doing world building and, uh, you, you know, how much did you know? And I, I had this asked last night about uh, the uh, Genesis project and how far back did I know about this? And, uh, th- you know, I said if I wanted to appear brilliant, I would tell you that uh, I knew all of this 30 years ago when I started out. <laughs> and uh, I've just been steadily working my way along, but that's not true. 
Uh, it's basically incremental, and uh, you know, it's a, almost a need-to-know basis. It's you reveal the things you, that the readers need to know to when it's important that they know them, and, and then you hold it back until then. But as a writer writing about a world, you build that world incrementally as the pieces need to be revealed to the readers and as they fit into the story in a way that matters. And the rest of it you just do as you go. Mm -hmm. And I certainly had no idea, after even in the beginning uh, with the first book, how far this was going to go or how you know what kinds of stories would follow. One of the advantages of doing... Um, uh, generation skipping sagas is that it allows you to disconnect from a time and a place and a, and a group of characters and move ahead and just pick it all up and start over again and then you can rework your evolution yeah and you can there's that that place of you you get to you don't have to redefine a lot because the people now the people that are reading it now understand so much of it and then tying into the stories that you're connecting from before you do that thing that we do in our society in our in our own world where we connect with other with other places because of our experiences i want to take a call i'm so sorry to oh to that's do this. right um but uh, john from santa cruz welcome to geek speak what's your question hey i had the uh, two questions are you still there john I think that he might have pushed Those the... are extremely short questions, <laughs> and I like those questions a lot. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so, sounds like he's on a cell phone. Yeah, John, you want to try that again? Out. Go ahead. Yeah, and then the second point, just... Uh, wait, John, John, do your first one. We didn't hear anything what you said, so go ahead. Oh, okay. Sword of Shinar, 800 pages. Was that typewritten, or did you use a uh, computer? There were no computers. <laughs> so there was no computer. It was a typewriter. You remember typewriters and keyboards? and Yeah, I, you know. I used those. That actually helped me uh, get my job. There you go. Well, I, I was a good typist. That's one of the courses I took in school that really helped me in life. And uh, so I typed the first uh, book on a Selectric. Okay, so, so electric, not manual. Yeah, no, I didn't have a manual. I, did, I was far enough advanced uh, at that time to have an electric typewriter. What's your second question, John? Oh, the second was more observation. You were talking about post-apocalypse uh, works. Well, actually, Sword of Shannara contains elements of that in it as well. Yes, that's correct. Uh, there were foreshadowings, uh, I guess you would say foreshadowings, of what was to come, even though I didn't realize it at the time, because that backdrop of what the world was like before in a world where science was dominant uh, was important to set up in showing how things had changed so that now magic was the dominant power. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. You know, Terry, one thing that I remember really distinctly when the Sword of Shannara came out was the cover art, the calendars, the illustrations were really striking. Yeah. And now you've got a new graphic novel out. Could you talk about the importance of illustration in your work over the years and with this latest graphic novel? Well, I, you know, when Sword came out and then after that, uh, Wish Song and uh, Elfstones and Wish Song, uh, they did do... Uh, various types of uh, artwork within the pages of, of, the, of all three novels as well as the cover art uh, in an effort to build a readership and uh, they thought uh, having those illustrations uh, would draw readers to the book uh, which is still still pretty much true but it got to be too expensive so they quit doing it uh, they didn't want to drive the book price up so far so the, we, for long periods of time, all we've had is cover art and nothing else except maps. Uh, and we've done no interior illustrations at all. And it's only been uh, since manga has become so uh, incredibly popular over the last, what, maybe 10 years or maybe less than that, um, that the publishers have all started looking at graphic novels as a new format for fantasy uh, and not as its own thing, as, as, a, uh, you know, as, as just a small little... 
a slice of the market, but as something that ha- could find a wide readership. And so my publisher asked me a while back if I would do something for them in the Shannara world, uh, come up with a story and characters and so forth that they could adapt to graphic novel form, and that's what's happened. Have you enjoyed it? Have you enjoyed doing that process? Well, I didn't do very much, uh, let's face it. Uh, uh, my job was to uh, come up with the story and the characters. That's not so tough. And then oversee uh, the people who did all the work, uh, Edwin, David, and uh, Robert. Uh, and they did the, they did all of the, of the heavy lifting, as it mm-hmm. were. And all I had to do was say, yeah, you're doing great, or no, go back and do it again. Uh, so, you know, that's pretty easy. But, I, I but had no idea you did, a graphic novel was done of this. Is it out? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's out. It's called Dark Wraith of Shannara. It came out uh, oh, last spring. Oh, that's the Dark Wraith. Okay. That's the Dark Wraith. And um, I'd written a short story uh, for uh, Legends uh, 2 uh, for Robert Silverberg, which, uh, on which the graphic novel w- uh, spun off and uh, used that as kind of the jumping off point. An area, an area that I would not write a book about. Uh, later at any point, and that I would simply uh, use as uh, f- strictly for graphic novel purposes, and I don't know then if we'll do anything more with it or not. Did you enjoy the experience of doing episode one uh, novel? Yes, very much. This is a Star. Sorry, Lucas came to you, talked about Star Wars, and segueing to- into it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I did. Uh, uh, working on uh, uh, with uh, George Lucas and and the, and the people in the Star Wars uh, Empire uh, was a good experience for me. They were extremely. Uh, uh, they were extremely helpful, uh, gave me a huge amount of freedom. Uh, I was allowed to do uh, quite a bit to uh, develop the uh, novel as more of a companion piece rather than a paint-by-the-numbers yeah. uh, type of thing. And um, that made the project uh, attractive to me. Uh, I was assured from the beginning I could write original material, could you know change it around a bit and do some different things. And So, yeah, yeah that was a good experience, unlike Hook, which was not. <laughs> Well, let's talk more about Star Wars then. Did you, did you, were you a fan already of the, the movies? Oh, sure. Are you kidding? Wasn't, isn't everybody? You <laughs> yeah. know, the first three movies uh, were a big, were very, you know, I was, I could remember where I was. Well, actually, the connection is, is, more, is deeper than you think because uh, George Lucas took the project to Del Rey uh, back in the beginning with uh, A New Hope and, and the other two. Um, and they bought the rights to do the books. And Judy Lynn Del Rey was very supportive of of uh, Lucas back at a time when not a lot of people necessarily were and uh-huh. thought, did not necessarily believe in this project. So he never forgot that. And uh, that movie, uh, Star Wars, uh, the first one, came out in 1977, the second most important thing that happened that year, as you might recall. <laughs> the first being, of course, publication of Sword of Shannara. And she was editor on that book as well as mine, and she talked to him about... Uh, you know, sort of Shannara and how she thought that book was going to make a big difference and talked to me about how important Star Wars was going to be. And, of course, I was saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's American <laughs> Graffiti? I want to see that again. <laughs> <laughs> so in doing, I mean, this is, you, you get to do something that thousands and thousands of fans want to do. You, you got to explore the Star Wars universe and make your own story that's actually a part of that universe, mm-hmm. which is a real treat. I mean, as a fan of Star Wars, that I can't, I, I've never talked to anybody else that was able to do that. I was it intimidating? That, yeah. uh, no, it wasn't intimidating. At that point, it could have been. I think that was another, one of the reasons that uh, Del Rey had uh, approached me about doing the project after, after they decided that maybe I was the right choice. Uh, knowing that I'd said never again will I do this is that I already had a career and I was already established as a best-selling author and mm-hmm. so I wasn't in a place where I was necessarily going to be intimidated by this project and in fact I was a hostile <laughs> at the beginning so uh, I you know went down there thinking well I can walk away from this if, if I hear anything I don't like my right. 
Um, so yeah, you know it, uh, it, it. But it was, it was energizing to talk to the people. I think that made all the difference is hearing uh, how excited they were about it and saying we want you to do more. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Lucas told me uh, in our first meeting. He said I'd really want to do wanted to do more with Anakin uh, in the. Uh, movie than I did, can you write the book so that it tells us more about him as a boy? And then we hashed around about how that might happen and so forth. And, and that's was kind of my marching orders you know, to start I, with. I used to pick up a, a, a novel of a movie every once in a while, mm-hmm. and I just stopped doing it. But to know that there's more about Anakin, I, I may not have to read that then. Well, <laughs> I've heard of, from a lot of people who, who afterwards uh, reading it, how they felt it really gave them better insight into what the heck was going on. Yeah. Um, and they felt that they learned a lot more about uh, the Sith and the Jedi and midichlorians and all the rest just because I was able to go into it in some depth in a way that the movie didn't have the time or space to do. The, the right. advantage of the book is uh, you, you may have, have the visuals, but you have the space to really get into things that the readers and that people who are fond of the series would like to know about. Yes, well, but did you have Jar Jar Binks stepping in a pile of dung. (laughs) (laughs) I was uh, able to uh, extract a promise that I could do what I wanted to about Jar Jar and uh, including changing the dialogue and uh, focusing more on aspects of the story that I felt had more merit. Uh, I think you're my new hero. Thank you very much. Well, well, while we're talking about movies, where's the Shannara movie TV series, uh, HBO <laughs> mini series? HBO, yeah. That's where's where we that? want to go. Yeah, where's my check in the mail, right? Uh, <laughs> it must have been optioned a million times, I would presume. It's been optioned a couple of times, but oh. for a long time, I didn't want to do this because I felt like uh, there was a problem with. Um, you know, it, it was sort of like I knew what was going to happen. I, I mm. knew because we optioned uh, sort of Shanner in the beginning was optioned right off the bat. And uh, I saw the end result when the option got dropped, and it was very scary, very scary. They had what do you totally mean, they changed, changed it. Uh-huh. Totally changed it. I saw the script. I saw the you know the whole thing, and it was just not, it didn't resemble anything. So when you got that back, it was a big so relief. Were, yeah, it was <laughs> a huge really relief. Yeah. And the Del Rays, uh, they sent it to me only after it had been dropped, and they said, "Now we'll show this to you." And uh, and they said, "Bear this in mind for future encounters." So for years, I went underground and didn't do anything. But with the new one, I feel a lot better because uh, the uh, Warner Brothers people who now have the option on Shannara, uh, and I've had it now about eight months, I guess, and direct the director, Mike Newell, have, have a track record that I feel much more comfortable with. And uh, what they're saying about what they hope to do, this is going to be with Elfstones now, mm-hmm. um, makes me a little more reassured. That and the fact that I'm now jaded enough that I can accept the fact that it's not going to be exactly like the book and right. it's going to mostly serve as a vehicle uh, to reach people who don't necessarily know about the books and haven't read them and perhaps I'll pick up some new readers. And uh, maybe the 80% of the population that doesn't read. There's, there's that <laughs> problem too, but you never know. <laughs> and, and they're including you. They are. Yeah. Good, good. Okay, and, and so you're gonna, are you going to have like approval process? I mean, is that... Nobody, yeah, you can get approval process and they can blow you off in a nanosecond because you don't have any real authority. So what I have is right of consultation. And the best way, uh, what little I know about this is is the best best way to make an impression in, in a situation like that is to send them something that says... If they will show you what they're doing, you can send them something that says, this is why this works or this is why this doesn't work. And that usually elicits at least a response Mm -hmm. of some sort. So we won't see something 
drastic, like a new character that has no meaning. Well, the story, no, no, no. You know, the story treatments I've seen so far, and they don't have a, uh, they haven't settled on a screenwriter yet, but the story treatments I've seen so far from uh, writers they have talked to, hew pretty close to the storyline. And while we know there's going to be some excises and some consolidations, they're not looking to do major things. And the couple times I saw things and wrote back, they changed them right away. I would love to speak with you for another hour, and I'm so sorry that we can't. The author that we've been speaking with is Terry Brooks. He's got an amazing collection of very good books. The books that we were talking about in general was the Shannara series, or Shannara series. Yeah. And uh, Terry Brooks, thank you so much for being on Geek Speak today. I had a great time. Thank you all. And he's going to be at Bookshop Santa Cruz at 4 o'clock, so uh, head down there to ask the questions that we got from you that we didn't have time to answer. <laughs> That's right. Geek, Spe Geek Speak on KSP is supported by Santa Cruz Electronics, offering an extensive selection of computer and electronic parts as well as support services. Santa Cruz Electronics is open daily at 2808 SoCal Avenue and online at santacruzelectronics.com. Tune in to Talk of the Bay in its new time slot Sunday evening at 7 p.m. for Insight Conversation all about local issues. This week, Rachel Ann Goodman looks at the aftermath of two fires. Big Sur is bracing for record um, mudslides and Bonnie Dunes Volunteer Fire Brigade wants to break away and form its own district. Are these rural communities really prepared for the next natural disaster? That's Talk of the Bay Sunday evening right here on KOSP at 7 p.m. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KOSP, Santa Cruz, KBDH, San Ardo. You've been listening to Geek Speak. My name's Lyle Troxel. Geek Speak is a registered service mark of online tonight with David Lawrence and is used by permission. The geeks today were Miles Elam, Sean Cleveland, our book expert, Rick Kleffel, and you can hear Rick's show on... Uh, on KUSP at 88.9 at s Sundays at 6 p.m. Sundays at 6 p.m. Thank you, Geeks, and thank you, Terry Brooks, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned, of course, for Car Talk coming up right now on KUSP. Next week on, on Geek Speak, we have another wonderful show, and we'll make sure to take tech calls, computer questions, and all that. Thanks for tuning in to Geek Speak, and I'll see you next week. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.